Hey, good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel today. We're so glad you're here. My name is Greg Paris. I'm one of the guys here, so we're glad you've chosen to be with us this morning. We've been in a series that we'll complete today entitled Goliath Must Fall. We've been talking about big issues that all of us have to deal with, all of us struggle with from time to time. These five big things are fear and anger and rejection, complacency, and today we're going to talk about addiction. All of God's people suffer from all five of these things, and it's good for us to understand them, to identify them, and to seek the wisdom of God about ways to address them. We've used as our reference point for this series this epic battle between the young shepherd boy David and this massive giant warrior Goliath, and we have learned much uh, from this story. So today we return to that text, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 33 to 39 and 45 and 46. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If not, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. The context here, we pick up the story. David has just reported to, the, to Saul the king that he's willing to go out and fight this Goliath. To which Saul replies, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him, a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic, tried to walk in around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Now to verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. I <laughs> may God instruct and inspire us through these important words. You may be seated. Thanks so much. See if you agree with this first uh, statement. We're one of the most overstimulated generations of people in the history of the world. You agree? Uh, I think it's true for sure. We now have 900 TV, TV channels. 900 TV channels. Now think about that. How many of you are old enough to remember when there were just four? Four channels. Look around. These are the, these are the old people in the room. These are geezers among us. For, there were the three major networks, and then there was typically a local UF, UHF station that you could get, you know, if the wind was blowing just the right direction. So, so everybody knew what everybody else was watching because we, we only had four stations, and we were all watching the same thing. And so we could talk about what we watched on TV. It's an amazing, an amazing world. Uh, I don't know about you, but 
constant stimulation now. We're overstimulated. I have found myself in this moment. Maybe you have too. I, this, is, I hate, this is a pathetic confession. But I've actually sat in front of my TV, you know, this 50-inch high-def screen with 900 channels surfing along, surfing along, surfing along, and then going, there's nothing to watch. What is wrong with me? I mean, what's, what, is, what is the... There's, there's gotta, that's got to be symptomatic of something. Back in the day, my parents, as a punishment would send me to my room. Do you remember that? Remember those? That's back in the day. Now, this is, of course, this is before computers, no cell phones, no video games, no Wi-Fi, no email, no streaming video, no billion connection points to, the, to social media. Back in the day, when none of that existed, being sent to your room was the worst possible punishment. It's like solitary confinement because there's nothing going on in the room. In today's world, you can't get your teenagers out of their room because that's where they're hunkered down. They're burrowed in and they're, and they're just in, invested in the technology. We are an addicted generation. We don't think of ourselves as addicted, but we are. It's a tough blanket to spread. It's a tough pill to swallow, but I think it's true. Mention the word addiction and the tone, the mood in the room changes. We immediately go to those big things such as alcoholism or drug abuse or gambling, pornography. We think of addicts only as those poor souls who need to go to rehab. And we kind of put it in that context. But this generation is addicted to all manner of things. Some stuff little, some stuff big. We always need to have something going on. We've always got to be filling our minds with something that distract us or entertain us. So some addictions are to little things. Other addictions are to big things. So let's cast a wider net. On the screen, I want to give you a definition of addiction. Look at it with me. An addiction is anything we can't live without. An addiction is anything we can't live without. We're enslaved to this thing. It's a habit we can't break. It's a person we can't separate from. It's a pattern we won't change. And it's ultimately harmful. It harms us, it hurts us, and it damages the people around us. It leads us down to this never-ending path to this never fulfilled promise. You know, an addiction promises you, uh, you'll feel better, you'll be better if you engage in this, and it never, it never fulfills. It's a never ending disappointment. And the end of it, addiction can stand over us and ridicule us and dim the lights of God in our lives to diminish in us the fame and glory that God has intended for us. So for some people, the drug of choice is alcohol. For other people, it's meth, a completely ruinous drug. For others, it's cocaine. Some people think cocaine is a harmless drug just to keep the party going all night. It's not. Painkillers are big these days. Overproduced, overmarketed, overprescribed, overindulged. Oxy gets a lot of news these days. Heroin has made an, a comeback in culture, leaving carnage everywhere. It's a mess. Some people are addicted to money. Mm -hmm. You just can't get enough of it. No matter how much money you have, you still need more. Just like the rich guy who was asked, how much is enough? And he says, just a little bit more. And so you're stuck there, addicted to money. Some people are addicted to sex. Plenty of people are addicted to porn. We've all seen the statistics. Uh, porn is like the giant elephant in every room. It's uh, in every room we go to now in, in the world. 
from the fourth grade classroom all the way to this room today in the middle of a worship service. It's a huge giant standing up in our lives today. Some people are addicted to buying things. Yeah, getting more stuff. When you can't cope with life, you go online or you go to the store. You can't stop yourself. It doesn't matter how much money you have to spend or how little money you have to spend. You just can't stop. This addiction runs all up and down the socioeconomic chain. This addiction is laughably called retail therapy. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm engaged in retail therapy. Uh, we laugh about it, but make no mistake, it's a drug. It's a drug. Accomplishments can be a drug. People who seek a new level of achievement at work, they need the promotion, they need the award, they need the commendation. You bring home all A's, if you get an A minus, you just, it ruins your life. You've gotta be 4.0. You always need to come in first. You're always striving to achieve. You can't handle it if you don't. So accomplishments can be an addiction. Some people are addicted to their own adrenaline. I know this firsthand. It can be a drug. You can't be at rest. You need to be hyped up all the time. You know, it's Red Bull for breakfast, five-hour energy for lunch, triple espresso for dinner. You don't want the motor to stop. You don't want things to slow down. You'll do anything to avoid uh, the stop and the silence that comes with it. Very difficult for you because adrenaline is your drug. Some people are addicted to pain. This is especially true in our youth culture today. And so you cut yourself or you burn yourself or you deliberately put yourself in dangerous or painful situations because that's how you deal with life. It goes like this, a normal day makes you feel numb, and so you believe the only way you can cope is by feeling something, anything, and you discover that, that physical pain makes the endorphins, endorphins flow, and so that's your choice. Some people are addicted to people. Heads up now, you need a certain person. If you don't see that person or hear from that person, then you get out of sorts makes you anxious, you get nervous, you get anxious, you, and you know who you are. You're the, you're the person in the room right now in the middle of a worship service listening to a sermon and you have your cell phone around on your lap. And the reason it's on your lap is because you wonder why he hasn't texted you. You thought he would text you by now, he still hasn't. I don't know why he hasn't texted me. I sure wish he'd text me. And if the next five minutes go by and you haven't received the text that you're expecting, you're, you're going to get nervous, you're going to get anxious, you're going to get wobbly, you're going to get out of sorts, you're going to get, get angry, you're going to get stressed. That's an addiction, addicted to people. The most widespread addiction in our culture today, and there isn't a close second, it's the most widespread addiction out there is the approval of others. Very real. Social media has figured this out. Social media sticks a knife into the addiction of approval and twists it. Social media, as we know, is okay. It's a, it's a good thing when it helps family and friends stay connected, when it's used to celebrate other people's lives or a way of encouraging the world. We can give glory to God through social media, but it can also be harmful, and we're all aware of that. People post a picture of themselves, a little picture, maybe a little story behind it, and then they wait. They wait for the likes. The response to that post, positive or negative, then has great power over your sense of well-being. Remember, if you live for the approval of others, listen, then you'll die by their rejection. If you live for the approval of others, you'll die by their rejection. Here's a statement that I hope some of you who are, who are techno-savvy, that you'll tweet this. 
If social media is where you're getting your approval, and if it's your drug, then social media is going to kill you. Tweet that. I dare you, because it's true. All of that to say that all of us are vulnerable. All of us are vulnerable to one thing or another. And underneath any addiction is a larger question, and it's this. What problem is occurring in my life that I need to mask the pain or the emptiness with some addiction? You see, uh, drugs and alcohol and sex and porn and gambling, social media, unhealthy relationships, retail therapy, these things are only symptoms. They're symptoms of the real problem. They're symptoms of the real cause. The root cause of addiction is pain. It's pain. Somebody sins, somebody rejects us, inflicts pain on us, emotional pain, physical pain, relational pain, economic pain. We're made to feel not good enough, don't have what it takes, branded with inadequacy, our security, our sense of personhood, our sense of significance taken away. The, the world is off, it's out of sorts, it's upside down. Nothing is real clear or right or good. We just, we've lost our way. So we feel lonely or angry or tired or annoyed or frustrated, fearful, betrayed, lost, disgusted, grieving, just knocked off kilter. That's the cause. That's the cause. The symptom is whatever addiction shows up and promises to make us feel better. You may be having a bad day. I speak from experience. Maybe having a bad day and reach for a bag of Oreo cookies. And just a couple of Oreo cookies won't do. And so you eat the whole bag of Oreo cookies. I have firsthand knowledge of this. I can tell you what the immediate effect of eating a whole bag of Oreo cookies is. You may think, well, you got sick. No, no, I could eat two bags of Oreo cookies. That's not the problem. <laughs> I can tell you what the effect, though. The effect is that it makes you feel full and makes you feel, feel good. I mean, just right away. The whole process makes you feel better. Here's the problem. It doesn't last. Not only does it not last, it has after effects. And they're not good. They're not good at all. And they're bad, in fact. And you, you uh, pile a bunch of behaviors like that on top of each other, and you're going to have all kinds of issues, beginning with health issues. And so people get addicted to food. Um, People ask me how I lost 50 pounds. I said I had to break my addiction to my emotional attachment to food. I did. Because I, you know, the, the, the counselor, all of the authors were saying, do you have an addiction to food? And I go, of course. Of course I do. I love food. Food and I are very, very close. <laughs> I have a very strong emotional attachment to food. Are you kidding? Yes. Well, that could be a problem. Well, then I've got a problem. <laughs> so I had to break that. If I, you can't lose 50 pounds if you don't break that. So I have to change the whole way I think about food. And that took some time. That took some effort. And, and yet that's what, that's what it takes. And so what, what, what happens is you have to look past the symptom and examine the cause. What is the source of pain or chaos or inadequacy or fear? So here's our pattern. Vulnerability makes us feel weak. We know we're susceptible to these things. And so weakness makes us try to cover up and to cope. And when we try to cover up and cope, we run to an addiction. 
So the question is, what do we do? How do we manage this? How do we respond to this? Now, you can perhaps appreciate the difficulty of my task this week to talk about addiction. Addiction must fall. Okay, it's pretty dramatic, right? So you can appreciate the challenge that I have to, in 30 or 35 minutes, try to tackle this very complicated, complex situation, this complex problem that's pervasive in our culture, and try to deal with it. So here's what I've chosen to do. I am simply going to lay out the very basic cornerstones of what it will take to overcome any addiction. The, the foundation points, the essential pieces, the starting point, if you will, to deal with this kind of phenomenon in your life. And so that's what I'm going to do in the next few minutes. It's on your outline, and here's the first point. This is the most important thing you will ever do in any category in your life, including dealing with addiction, and that is find your God. Find your God. Now, in our text today, Saul, Saul is actually using his armor on David as a means of cover-up. Now, think about this. Saul used his armor applied to David as a means to show everybody else how serious this problem is and how hopeless the situation you see, Saul was the king. Saul was actually physically the largest guy in the nation. He should have been the one to go out and fight this giant. He was a leader. He should take responsibility as a leader. He should lead the battle. He should have been out there, but he's afraid. He's overwhelmed. He's weakened. He's worried. He, he just has no clue what to do, and he's just internally shaken. And so in order to somehow cover up his weakness... He wants to put his armor on David just to show everybody else, this is a hopeless situation. I mean, I, we can put the armor on this guy, but this is, a bit, this is a big deal. I mean, that giant is huge. I mean, who could possibly deal with him? And so he's covering up his own problems. Saul, as it turns out, couldn't rest in David's proclamation of the goodness and sufficiency of God. What, what they immediately couldn't see when David went out to face Goliath, Saul and the whole army of Israel, is they couldn't see the hand of God. All they could see was the natural, the, the natural staging of this fight, which didn't look hopeful at all. This is a bad moment. What they couldn't see and couldn't appreciate and couldn't get their hearts around and their minds around was the opportunity that it provided to give a trusting, hopeful response of faith in Jesus Christ and God. And so they couldn't see it. And we do it too. We try to put on false armor all the time. We feel powerless in the world. We're afraid. We're open to attack. And so we hide. We hide. We hide in the addictions. We try to wrap ourselves in things that promise to make us stronger and protect ourselves from our truest selves because we're vulnerable. We're insecure. We've been rejected. We're afraid. We're angry. We're all these things. And the symptoms of it are these addictive behaviors. And so we try to hide from it. Why do people drink before they go to a certain party? Why are people drinking during a party? Well, you ask a partier and they'll tell you, well, you know, you, you drink because it, you know, it loosens people up and kind of the filters come down and it makes it easier to socialize. You know, it just it increases the fun. We have more fun when we drink. Well, so what, what is the real motivator there? You just want to have a good time? I just want to kind of decompress and have a good time. Yeah, that's, that's all. Well, there's nothing wrong with having a good time, right? But what if, what if the motivation is because you're afraid of people? What if it's because you're afraid of rejection? What if you drink because 
because you're, you're really concerned that you won't receive from other people the approval you think you need. What if that's behind it? So you turn to an addiction rather than to God. David models this well for us. What does he do? He puts aside all the stuff. He lays down the sword. He takes off the helmet. He takes off all of this, this armor. He, he just puts it down. And he goes and faces this nine and a half foot giant, this invincible warrior with a slingshot. This is stunning. This is amazing. You can see the, the men in the army of Israel going out there. David, David not just goes out there with a slingshot with nothing else, some sandals. And, and here's this Goliath. He's fully, he's fully dressed. And the first thing that happens is Goliath takes offense. Goliath assumes the biggest, strongest, baddest warrior in Israel's army is going to come out and try to confront him. But instead, they send out this boy. And it's offensive to the giant. He takes offense. He says, what do you think? I'm a child. Come out here with this ready kid. And I mean, he's already ticked off. And the guys in the army are just going, oh, man, he's ticked off. And so then he, then he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher you, boy, and feed your, feed your carcass to the, to, the, to the animals today. And you can just see guys wincing and going, oh, boy, that's bad. And so David, David, instead of going, oh, like this, you know, the cowardly lion, he stands up and he returns volley. And he engages in this verbal combat. You're not going to hurt me today. You keep defying the armies of the living God, I'm going to whack off your head and feed your body to the, to the animals today. You can see the guy's going, oh man, now he's going to be really ticked off. This is not going to end well. So you can see them imagining what's going to happen next. But David attacks him in the faith that he has in his God. There's a reason then for all of the efficient, effective recovery ministries and programs that always begin with the acknowledgement of God or a higher power. It's always the first step. What is the first step in recovery? Recognize your need for something besides yourself. Someone bigger, someone stronger, someone higher. It's always the first step. And the reason it's the first step is because it's the most important step. The first thing Saul said to David when he said, I'm going to go fight that scoundrel, that pagan, Saul said to him, you're not able to do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And he was right. He was right about that. David couldn't fight Goliath in his own strength any more than we can fight our addictions in our own strength. We can't do it. You're not able. And so we learn that the first step is to find our God. Think about it. David goes out there, and he is as vulnerable as any person could be. Imagine with me, if you will, the United States Special Forces. You know, one of those SEAL team guys. Think about, think about some kind of competition is held, or at least the commander of one of these elite forces is asked, who's the baddest dude in the whole unit? Who's the, like, if you could pick one warrior to represent the United States in combat, which guy would you pick? And he might pick somebody out. So it's that guy right there. I wouldn't mess with him. Wouldn't mess with him. Now imagine, he goes out on, on the field of battle. He's, he's fully armed. He's, he's, got, he's got his helmet on. He's got his his uh, bulletproof stuff on. He's, he's got all of his weapons strapped all over him. And he's there. He is the baddest dude in the United States Special Forces. And then to fight him, 
for, on behalf of the whole nation, whoever wins, that nation gets freedom and the other nation gets bondage. We send out a middle schooler with a slingshot. All right, can you get the picture now? Can I ask you again, was David vulnerable? Are you kidding? You can't get more vulnerable than that. This isn't going to go well for this kid. And so out he goes in this vulnerable position. Let me ask you this question. What, are, what do the last four letters of the word vulnerable spell? A-B-L-E. Able. They spell able. Now think about that. Let that sink in. Here's how it works. We come to God just as we are. No hiding, no masking, no pretending. We're vulnerable to God. We know what he thinks about us. He loves us. We're his beloved sons and daughters. That's clear. He loves us. He redeems us. He's forgiven us. And because of that, we, we are safe. This is a safe place. It, it's not a risky place. It's not a dangerous place. Being vulnerable with God. It's a safe place. We know that. And so what we learn is if there's anything good that comes out of harmful addiction, it's that we remind us that we're created to be dependent creatures, that we have to be dependent on God. They have to be dependent on Him all the time. We're created by God for God. There's a God-sized hole in all of our lives, and the only thing that fills it is an intimate and real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where an amen goes in the sermon. So addiction at that point is not bad if we reroute our cravings towards something good. The Apostle Paul actually came on the scene and he said, look, everybody's going to be a slave to something. You can be a slave to sin or, he said, you can be a slave to righteousness because everybody's going to be, everybody's going to be a slave. Everybody's going to have a ball and chain with a name on it. So everybody's going to be in bondage to something. And so Paul concludes, I've just chosen to become a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So he took, all, he took all of the things that represented baggage and issues and bondage and addiction and all that weak stuff in his life, and he simply substituted all of that tendency toward addiction, substituted it out for an addiction to Jesus. We need more grace addicts walking around. We need more people who are addicted to Jesus and less addicted to the other stuff that don't matter. I have made this confession out loud. I've done it in this series that this is how I've made a life for myself and my family and for our church. This is, this is what I've done. This is what I've practiced. I've confessed to you that I'm a firstborn, type A, perfectionistic, performance-driven, uh, addicted to my own adrenaline, addicted to my own performance mess. I'm as compulsive as anybody you've ever met. I'm a mess. I became a follower of Jesus when I was 16 years old. Not a moment too soon. Because I know what I'm like. I sometimes speculate on what my life would have been like without Jesus. I don't dwell there very long because it doesn't end well because I'm a mess and I'll just tell you what I've done I'll tell you what I've done I've taken my brokenness and my fears and my perfectionism my self-reliance and my performance and my addiction to my own adrenaline and I have transferred it into a devotion for Jesus 
I met Jesus when I was 16, and as I got to know him, I realized he was the most wonderful, amazing, trustworthy, reliable, profound, compelling person I've ever met. So I gave my life to him. So I love to talk about Jesus. I love to know Jesus. I love to experience Jesus. I love to serve Jesus. This is all I do. I've spent the last 50 years just taking all my compulsions and focusing on serving, loving, getting to know Jesus. That's what you want. As far as I can tell, Jesus hasn't healed me of any of my compulsions. I live with them every day. I just keep them focused on him. When I was growing up, I used to watch Andy Griffith on TV, you know, black and white with Andy and Barney and Aunt B and all the rest. And when our boys were growing up, we would tape them on the old VCRs. And then when the boys got together in the room, we would plug the tape in. We'd, we watched literally every episode of Andy Griffith multiple times. Our boys to this day, if you set them in a room and showed them Andy Griffith, they could each say the next line in the program. Isaac can sing all the songs that were ever sung on the Andy Griffith song, all those bluegrass songs and Ernest E. Bass, Hillbilly songs. He knows them all just by rote. He can sing them for you right now off the top of his head. But what we would do is play those programs and then we'd sit down and talk about the values that were being taught in that program. If I was raising small children today, I would use Andy Griffith's show as a, as a tool to teach. I'd, I'd, I'd make my small children watch those and then, I, then we'd have a big conversation about the things they learn watching. They don't make them like that anymore. And so all of you can now tell me who the town drunk was in Mayb Mayberry. Who was the town drunk? Otis Campbell. Otis Campbell, he's a charming drunk. This is what happens though in small towns, isn't it? If you grew up in a small town, Beth and I did, if you live in a small town now, you know this is true. You, the prominent people in town, you, everybody knows. You know the banker, you know the policeman, you know the insurance guy, you know, you know the mayor maybe, or you, you, you know the, doc, the doctor in town, you know, you know the town drunk. In the town that Beth grew up back in the day, the town drunk was a guy named Bill Lieberg. You ask anybody in town who's the town drunk, they'd say, oh, that's Bill Lieberg. <laughs> just, you know, just a matter of fact. Because everybody knew. Bill Lieberg started drinking when he was a teenager and became an alcoholic very quickly. And he started to live into his 20s. He got married, started having a family, and he was a disaster. Because alcoholism had consumed his life. But about age 30, Bill Lieberg had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Come on now. Jesus met him at the crossroads of his life. And so what Bill Lieberg did was he exchanged one bondage for another bondage. The Bible actually says that the one who has forgiven much is the one who will love much. So the guy who messes up the most, as it turns out, gets special grace to love Jesus the most. So for the past 60 plus years, if you ask anyone in Fowler, Indiana, Who's the most on-fire person for Jesus in this town? Everybody just say, oh, that's Bill Lieberg. <laughs> Bill Lieberg is still alive. He's 93 years old. And if we propped him up here today, he would give us a bold, confident, articulate, passionate witness for the transforming power available in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Amazing. So, so yeah, some folks, they, they just, they'll just say, well, you know, Bill went from disaster to disaster. You know, he went, for, he went from a raging alcoholic. Now he's, he's nothing but all about Jesus. You know, he's just, he's just whatever he does, he goes overboard. <laughs> Listen, that's what you want. We, we need more Jesus addicts. We need more people passionate for Jesus, sold out for Jesus, living for Jesus, taking all of the lesser things represented by the dysfunction and the destructive patterns and replacing that with a meaningful faith, confident trust in Jesus Christ. I will rest well this afternoon because I have been kicking, kicking it this weekend. This is such good preaching. It's so gratifying. Tomorrow I will have a good day because, you know, sometimes it, there, is, there is something worse than listening to a bad sermon, and that's preaching one, and, and it's, a, it's a horrible experience. You think hearing it is bad. Oh, my gosh. But th- this one's going along just fine. So the point is simply this. No matter the obstruction in your life, no matter the big thing in your life, no matter the Goliath in front of you, whether you're in the valley of Elah facing some heavy, serious, dark addiction, no matter your circumstances, there is a solution. And the solution is Christ. It is a relationship with Him and inviting Him into the context of your weakness so that you can glory in the strength that He will provide. That's the answer. Remember with rejection, we talked about that. So many people suffer from this. Remember the only way to beat rejection, not a good way, not a way, but the only way to beat rejection is to immerse yourself in the acceptance of Christ. Immerse yourself there. You know, the Bible says, look, everybody can abandon you. Everyone can reject you, but God will pick you up. This is the promise. Immerse yourself in the acceptance of Christ and your rejection pain will diminish by and by. So when the purpose of Christ fills your life, the need for substitutes, the need for counterfeits, the need for other medication, that'll all dissipate in the presence of Christ in your life. So find your God. Now let's go a little more quickly. Number two, write this down. It's foundational, it's essential. Number two, find your purpose. Find your purpose. If you find and pick up your purpose in life, then you will, you will lay down your addictions. Your addictions will no longer interest you if you find your purpose. Charles Wesley, the brother to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, Charles Wesley wrote 7,000 hymns. One of the lines in one of his classic hymns goes like this, be done with lesser things. Be done with lesser things. And that's the idea. You actually do an exchange of lesser things that may represent addiction for higher purpose, for higher meaning, for higher significance, for heavenly perspective, for eternal reward. You just, you just swap it out. One pursuit for another. I love... I love what the Apostle Paul reminds us, that we have this this wonderful opportunity to embrace in a purposeful way the design of God for our lives. We're made 
with purpose on purpose. On purpose with purpose. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not a happenstance. You, you are not just born with a group of people who were born at the same time and you're just part of the crowd. No, God knew you from the foundations of the world. He knew you before there was a you. He has a plan. He has a design. He has a purpose. He has a destiny for your life. You, he knows you. And he made you with purpose, on purpose. And so here's the way I like to ask the question. What is your one primary significant contribution that God wants you to leave in the world? Your one primary significant contribution that God wants you to leave as a result of your life, the legacy of your life in the world. Your one primary significant contribution. If you cannot answer that question, do not rest until you find the answer to that question because it's there and God has purpose in mind for you. And when you pick up your purpose, all the lesser things will, will dissipate. That's what I know. So some of you have been called, for example, to be a mother. This is your one primary significant. You're gonna be loyal to your husband and you're going to be a mother invested in the life of your children. And your one primary significant contribution is to raise those children honorably and virtuously so that when they become adults, they can live their lives in the same way. That's your call. You're called to be a mother. And if that's the call and purpose of God primary for your life, then give it everything you've got. And don't let any voice, don't let anyone dissuade or discourage you from God's best plan. Don't let them tell you you're missing out on something or you're not going to get the amount of stuff that someone else will because they have chosen a career or some other path. Don't let anybody push you away from that. Pursue your purpose. Give it all you've got. For some of you, for some of you, you're a teacher. You know you're called to teach. This is your purpose in life. And maybe it's teaching children or adults, but that's your niche. That's your passion. That's your deal. And you know God's wired you for it and, and put you in places for it. So you teach or you're coach and you're mentoring and you're instructing. And this is, this is the primary focus of your life. Give it everything you've got. Give it your best. Give it your best. Uh, so, some, of, some of you are called to, to bring order out of chaos. You have this administrative gift. You have this substantial management ability. And, and it's just there for you. And it's the way you manage your world and you manage every detail of your life. And, and God calls you into environments where you can, can bring that to, to, to play. Some of you have this, this one primary as an intercessor. There are people in this room today, no one will ever call your name out loud. No one will ever call it. But you know you're called to pray. You're called to intercede for others. And so you do your work, your primary significant contribution in private. You do it alone and you spend most of your day interceding and praying for others. And God has put his hand on you to do that. Give it everything you've got. Find your purpose. You'll be done with lesser things. And on and on the list goes of ways that God calls us and prepares us for our purpose. I wanna to submit to you that much of today's addiction culture is derived from a lack of purpose. Most of today's addiction culture gets motivated, gets energized by a lack of purpose. People falling into dark places because they don't know who they are, they don't know why they're here, and they don't understand their God-given purpose in the world. And so they're just, 
there and they've given up and they've given up hope. And so they, they indulge themselves in these behaviors and patterns that they know is self-destructive. But who cares? What's the use? And I would surmise that this is especially true among young men in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed this or you're aware of this, but let me just say it out loud. Men in today's culture, especially in Western societies, are under attack. The role and the value and the, and the place for authentic men in our culture is being scrutinized right now. There is, there is there's a movement, the, the modern narrative is to suggest that, that the, all of the social ills, all of the societal problems are the result of men acting badly. Men acting badly. And so you have this evil patriarchy that has corrupted all of the cultures of the earth. And if, if we don't correct this and, and change this, then the world is gonna go into some, some kind of destructive place. And I just wanna submit to you that when you fail to recognize God given role in the context of manhood and womanhood. You know, you've heard me say this over and over again. Men and women are at their best when they work together. When they work together. This is God's original intent and design. And so men and women, when they are both esteemed and both valued and both seen as, as equal and valuable and called of God in their God-given roles and responsibilities, this is when both genders thrive. And to, and to do this zero-sum game, where we see some of the feminist movement today impugning men and zero-sum that I've got to cast down the, the, the historic role and place and virtue of men in, in the culture. And so we don't need men and we don't need mean men and, and, and overbearing men and overpowering men and abusive men. We're better off without men. And listen, the message is coming loud and clear to young men. We have this plethora, we have these thousands of consequences, this evidence of, of, of the deprivation of authentic manhood, especially in younger men. And the, the opioid epidemic in our own community, I think is a direct result of saying over and over again for months and now years that men, you're not really necessary, you're not really valuable, you don't have a place, so why don't you just get out of our face? It is not only wrong, it is evil, it is demonic. And it's just plain stupid. It's moronic to castigate one gender in order to esteem the other. It's ridiculous. It's just incomprehensible. We need to value everybody. Everybody needs to be valued. Everybody is worthwhile. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a function. Everybody has a purpose. Everybody's important. Everybody's of equal value. Let's esteem one another. And let's do it together because we're better together. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what you hear from the culture, you hear from the culture is all the problems, all the social ills is because of, of ugly men. Well, as it turns out, men are the problem to societal's ills. But it is not, it is not because of men acting badly. It is not the presence of men who are abusive. It is rather the absence of godly men who know who they are, who made them who they are, and want to live with integrity and honesty and trustworthiness. That's the problem, and it's a real problem. So the clarion call of God that you're going to hear more and more, I prophesy this, you're going to hear more and more voices in our culture rising up in the context of this cesspool of nonsense, and you're going to hear people calling men to authentic manhood. 
and to a godly perspective and, and the godly vision of what it means to be authentic as a man. Because that is, that is not, only, not only the problem, that's also the solution. That's the solution. Write it down. Jesus is listening. Jesus is going, you preach it, brother. I know it's true. Next week is Father's Day. We're, I'm going to preach a sermon on this subject. Men, come, to, come next week. And everyone, if you know a man, bring him to church with you next week. We'll, we'll honor fathers, celebrate fatherhood, and we'll talk about manhood in that context. And my sermon will be entitled, Being the Kind of Dad That Your Children Will Love. It'll help you. Last point, write it down. Find your God, find your purpose. Number three, find your friends. Find your friends. Probably the greatest lie of all when we're facing our addictions is that we can wage this battle on our own. But our fears have us in cover-up. We're afraid of being known. We're afraid of being honest. We're afraid of being vulnerable. Remember Lazarus? uh, He was the friend of Jesus, lived in a town called Bethany. Lazarus had been dead four days. Jesus finally arrives on the scene in Bethany. Lazarus' sister comes out and said, if you'd been here earlier, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus said, you don't understand who I am. She thought Jesus could heal him before he, before he died, which he could. But she didn't appreciate the fact that he could resuscitate him after he was dead. Jesus said, you're not quite sure who I am. You see, I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> Nothing has authority over me, not even death. Jesus later proved that by overcoming his own death. Hell thought they'd won something when they, when they made Jesus dead, but they couldn't keep him dead because nothing has authority over Jesus, not even death. That's good news for us because because he lives, we shall live also. That's where the hope is, friends. You and I will never die. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm right about that. So Jesus goes to the tomb, the graveyard of their experience. Lazarus had been dead four days, so they had him all wrapped up, you know, put the, put the spices on, wrap him up like a mummy, put him in a tomb and rolled the stone across because he's been dead four days. We need to keep that thing closed up. They said, Jesus, four days. Jesus said, roll that stone away. Are you sure? <laughs> roll it away. And he just simply says, Three words, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus is resuscitated. Someone said it's a good thing he he named Lazarus. If he just said come forth, everybody dead in the cemetery would have gotten up. And then they had a real mess on their hands. But Lazarus comes out and he's a mummy. And it shocked people. This is shock and awe. Children are screaming. Women are passing out. If you had been there, listen, it would leave an impression with you. When's the last funeral you attended when she got up? You wouldn't forget. <laughs> Jesus, you got to be careful, right? What's the first thing Jesus says? He turns to Lazarus' friends and he says, Friends of Lazarus, go loose him from his garments of death. Unwrap him. Let him go free. 
All of us need help being unwrapped from our death. Hear it. Hear it. Outside help for some of us could look like rehab. Mm -hmm. May need to do that. It might take the shape of counseling. We have counselors here at Union Chapel who have specialties in addiction. It will for sure involve accountability in the context of friendship, tough love mixed with grace that will not let you go down that dead end again. A friend who sticks with you no matter what. So you do whatever's necessary to weave into your life into a system of openness and honesty and accountability until you're okay with being seen as needy or weak or never, never revealing your true self. You'll never receive the strength you need. Let me give you one more verse of Scripture. We're done. We're, we're on the home stretch here. This is final approach. 2 Corinthians 12. This is the Apostle Paul. He said, To keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now that's not intuitive, is it? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. What a strong statement. Now, theologians debate about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. They think maybe it was a physical illness, maybe blindness, encroaching blindness, or maybe some kind of demonic, tormentor, you know, that just hassled him all the time, or actually an actual stalker, who knows. But ultimately, this is an example of how weakness can be our friend. Because in our weakness and owning our weakness and living into our weakness, this is how we realize and actualize the power of Christ in our lives. He said, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. I know it's, it's counterintuitive, but this is where the strength comes from. I want to make one more statement. I'm going to put it on the screen because I want you to get the right perspective about all this. Everyone who has ever done something great for God has some sort of weakness. Now hear that. Don't put people on a pedestal. Don't imagine that some people are, you know, just there. Well, they're just perfect. They don't have any of these problems. Don't do that because it's not true. Everyone who has ever done something great for God has some sort of weakness. Put it another way. All the great people of faith walk with a limp. All of us. Don't forget it. As it turns out, we're all in the same boat. Everybody's got issues. Everybody's got baggage. Everybody's got weak spots. We all have to struggle. It's the nature of this life. And the sooner we come to terms with the fact that we are not able to overcome these giants, the sooner the power of God will come and give us the strength we need. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. David said it that day. He said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin in all of this human strength. But he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the armies of the living God. And it was in him David placed his trust. And through him, he won the victory. Do you get it? Do you hear it? Find your God. Find your purpose. 
Find your friends. And that giant will fall. Amen? Let's pray. Pause with me and bow your heads. Remember, friends, Paul said, For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Could, maybe you could repeat that after me out loud. Will you do it? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want to be strong? You want to be a stronger student, stronger husband, wife, parent, employee, leader, church builder? Then celebrate your weakness by admitting your vulnerability. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Find your God. Receive his love and acceptance, forgiveness. When you do, you'll find power for living. Find your God-given purpose. Live your life with a sense of destiny and honor, passion. And find a cadre of good friends who you can share your life with, holding one another strong all the way to the finish line. Lord, the world comes at us, the devil comes at us with sword and spear and javelin. And now help us to live our lives in the name of the Lord of the army of hosts, the God who has promised that if we glory in our weakness, that we will find his strength. Help us to be strong, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?